Uh, and this morning we want to continue uh, what is the final part of our Freedom in Christ series. Uh, we've spent time thinking about freedom from lies, uh, freedom from fear. Uh, last week, uh, TJ took time to look at freedom from unforgiveness. Uh, this morning, our focus is on a subject that's often overlooked, uh, but one that's vitally important uh, as we think about what it means to live faithfully and fruitfully for Christ. Uh, we're thinking about freedom from shame, freedom from shame. Uh, we're going to begin by reading Hebrews 12 and verses 1 to 2. Um, primarily because this is such an important passage uh, on this subject. Um, this is going to be our starting point, um, but it's also going to be the point that we're going to land on. We're going to focus on Hebrews 12, 1 to 2 at the end, uh, as we think about what it means to be free from shame. Um, and as we do that, we're also going to be looking at a, num a number of other passages that are going to help us as we come to terms with what shame is and the solution uh, to shame. Uh, my hope and prayer um, as we think about this subject, recognising this is a difficult subject for us to look at. Uh, we can all recognise that today. Um, but as we think about shame, um, the more and more we do this, the more and more we would see the power, the beauty, the reality of the gospel uh, for each one of us. That as we think about shame, we would think about the gospel. That's really my heart for us today. So Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, this is your word, and we come with humility. We come asking that you would speak to us. And we come, Lord, I pray that we would come with repentant hearts, and that we would come with a recognition that we do so often fall short. But we would also come with an understanding of grace, that your grace is sufficient for us. And your grace is sufficient for us as we spend time focusing on this passage and thinking about what it means to be free from shame. So we ask that by your spirit you would take this time, that you would use it, that you would shape us and mould us according to your glory. Amen. Uh, I don't know what your relationship uh, with shame is like. Uh, there's no doubt we all, from time to time, experience uh, varying degrees of shame in our lives. Uh, and the extent to which uh, this has been a problem in your life, to a greater or lesser degree, it's really something that only you can answer. I can't answer that for you. But I think we can all recognize shame as a reality. Uh, I'm fairly confident this morning uh, that as many of us have experienced shame, uh, we've not actually been aware that this is what it is. Uh, there's every chance that shame and its effects have had a tangible reality in our lives, but we've not put that particular label on it. Uh, so this morning, uh, what we're going to do is quite simply divide our time uh, into two parts. We're going to think about the problem of shame and we're going to think about the solution to shame. The problem of shame and the solution to shame. And as we do that, I really do hope and pray uh, this will aid us in terms of um, as we think about who God has called us to be, um, as God's word speaks to us, God's spirit would minister to us and that we would be strengthened by it. So the problem of shame is our first focus. 
There's no doubt about it, shame uh, in a particular unrighteous form is a problem. It is a problem for all of us. Uh, and for us to properly identify the problem of shame, we have to define what shame is. Uh, let me share with you something of a, a helpful definition, a starting point for us as we try and define what shame is. Uh, shame is a painful emotion of being sad, embarrassed, or guilty when you believe that something you have done is futile, improper, or immoral. Shame is a painful emotion of being sad, embarrassed, or guilty when you believe that something you have done is futile, improper, or immoral. It's a helpful starting point for us as we take time to understand what shame is, but I would also want to say there is so much more to shame than that definition. Uh, shame has a tendency to dig a lot deeper into the core of who we are, uh, more than any other emotion. And this in turn can have a negative effect upon us. Uh, for us to understand what I mean by this, and for us just to get a better definition of shame, uh, I want us to contrast the difference between shame and guilt. Shame is not guilt. Guilt is not shame. There is a very fine line, but a very important line between guilt and shame. Uh, the difference between these two has huge implications around how it is we function day to day. Uh, if we don't have an accurate understanding of what guilt is and what shame is, then we are going to be messed up in our hearts and minds. Uh, guilt is a feeling we have when we believe we have made a mistake. Let me say that again. Guilt is a feeling we have when we believe we've made a mistake. Uh, shame is a feeling we have when we believe that we are a mistake. Shame is a feeling we have when we believe we are a mistake. In other words, we don't think the problem is rooted in our actions. We think the problem is rooted in our identity and who we are as individuals. Cultural news site Mashable uh, echoes this and outlines how shame can be understood and defined in this way and also the effect it can have on connections and relationships that we have day to day. So this is an article from Mashable. It says, shame tends to be an isolating feeling. It convinces you that you're repulsively strange or incorrigibly flawed, but no one else could possibly understand you or even want to. Worse, it has a way of feeding into itself, making it impossible to even consider reaching out to someone who might get it. Uh, and this is what we see in scripture as well. Uh, before sin entered the world, we read of the spiritual and emotional state of our first parents, Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2.25, we're told both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. They felt no shame. They were naked and they felt no shame. When there's no shame, there's no need to hide anything. No need to cover up. But then, have a look at what we read post-fall. Post the first sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3-7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Sinless Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 were naked and they felt no shame and they did and they had no reason to cover up to hide but sinful Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 they were naked and they felt shame there's no doubt about it and they did everything they could to cover up 
and to hide. So it is with each one of us. If we believe we've sinned, if we then experience shame as a result of our sin, the fruit of that can be some kind of covering up and hiding. Uh, we see it in our culture. We see it uh, in Genesis 3. Gen uh, shame causes us to collapse in on ourselves, to focus on ourselves. And then we actively choose not to reach out to others because we are, by definition, ashamed. So I want us to begin this morning by recognizing that shame is a reality for every single one of us and as a reality, as a problem for all of us. It's a reality in our lives. It's a reality in this church. It's a reality in our society. There is an epidemic of shame in our world. Now, as we come to that definition of shame and as we recognize it as a potential problem, uh, I want us to understand this morning that not all shame is bad. And um, there is a shame which is actually righteous and there is a shame which is unrighteous. Uh, John Piper defines these as well-placed shame and misplaced shame. And I think these are definitions which are helpful and useful for us as we think about shame today. So how do we know when our shame is righteous or unrighteous? Uh, how do we know when our shame is well-placed or misplaced? Um, we know which kind of shame it is through the extent to which it dishonors God or honors God. That's how we understand what our shame is, what species of shame it is. Does it honor God or does it dishonor God? In other words, is our shame rooted in a desire and a drive to love God and trust in his promises? Or is our shame rooted in a desire and drive to reject God and to not trust in the promises that we find in his word? Well-placed shame um, is something that arises after we've sinned. So we sin, and well-placed shame uh, results uh, after we have sinned. We come to this realization that we have fallen short of God's holy standard. Uh, we feel it in our gut. We experience the shame of what we've done, and we confess we're a sinner. Um, I would find it difficult to get a more clear-cut example of this than when the prophet Nathan confronts David with his sin of adultery and murder. Uh, Nathan shares a parable of a man who had so much, but he stole from this one person who had so little. And David says this, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die because he has done this thing and shown no pity. And then in, in 2 Samuel 12, verse 7, Nathan's reply to David, you're the guy, you're the man. And look at how David responds in verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. And the fruit of all of this is Psalm 51, one of my favorite Psalms. David in his sin and in his shame, well-placed shame, he runs to God in repentance. In the first five verses of a Psalm, David says this, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion. My sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. 
You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. And in verses 10 to 12, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Now, if shame causes you to pray that kind of prayer, it's a good thing. That can only ever be a good thing. If you experience shame because of your sin and the spirit of what you pray is similar to Psalm 51 or Psalm 51, then that's a blessing. God is at work in your life. Well-placed shame has driven you to holiness. The Apostle Paul uh, does something similar. He, he writes to the church in Corinth and he also speaks about well-placed shame. And he speaks about how it's something the Corinthians should have. They don't have it, but they should have well-placed shame. And he, and he says this because he longs for them to grow, to be changed through God's Spirit, to become the people that he wants them to be and who God wants them to be. So in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 5, Paul is trying to help the church deal with this internal conflict. And he writes this to these believers. He says, I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame. Can it be there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? And in 1 Corinthians 15, 33 to 34, Paul, again, he's wanting them to be protected from the outside influences of the world and knowing that they are falling short in this area, he says this, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. If you're ignorant about God, I say this to your shame. Well placed shame. So we have two examples of when we should be ashamed. When we are not living wisely, and when we live in a manner that is outright sinful against God, and in both these instances, we are right to be ashamed. In any instance where we dishonor God, we should in fact be ashamed. And so if that's what well-placed shame is, what is misplaced shame? Uh, and to what extent is this a living problem in our lives day to day? Let me just share three examples of misplaced shame. So these are examples uh, are perhaps types of shame um, that we go through from time to time. Um, and I think all of us will be able to recognize these kinds of shame in our lives. We can all probably subconsciously just think back to moments where we have experienced one of these examples of misplaced shame um, based on our season or situation that we've been in. So misplaced shame, number one, is when, is when our, our well-placed shame lingers for too long when our well-placed shame lingers for too long. So we sin in some way, we experience the shame of the sin we've committed, and that shame was right and correct to have. And for whatever reason, that shame does not shift. Um, it could be we didn't ask God for forgiveness, or it could be we did ask God for forgiveness, but we didn't believe that God's forgiveness was enough for us after our repentance, and so we still carry this shame in our lives. And instead of God's promise of grace and a life looking forward to Christ, 
with all of his promises, we're instead looking back and we're still dwelling in the past and we're thinking again and again and again about that terrible thing that we did. Misplaced shame can be well-placed shame that lingers for too long because we believe that our sin is too big for God and his grace through the cross. We think that our sin is greater than God's love. We just sang, what a beautiful name. Yeah, we sang that a few moments ago. Um, and in that, there's a line from that song that says, my sin was great, your love was greater. All of us need to hear that this morning. All of us. I want you to take that line to the bank every day. My sin was great. My sin is great today. But your love was and is greater. God's love through the cross is the only solution to your problem of sin. The cross is the only solution. It's the only answer to your problem of sin. God's love is greater than your sin, meaning God is going to conquer all of your sin, all of the ways in which you fall short. Everything you say, do, think, your attitudes, that's the gospel. Jesus, through the cross, has defeated our sin so that we can live in grace. The problem in our hearts is that we often narrate and sing the opposite to that. So we often say to ourselves, your love was great. We all recognize God's love was great. But we say, my sin was greater. My sin was greater. And that so often happens when our well-placed shame lingers for too long and it runs rampant in our hearts and minds and it becomes misplaced shame. So that's the first thing we need to hold on to. Misplaced shame is when our well-placed shame lingers for, for too long. And misplaced shame is also when we're ashamed of something that honours and glorifies God. Um, we can be ashamed of Jesus. We can be ashamed of the gospel. We can be ashamed of being a Christian. We can be ashamed of the church as it fulfills its Great Commission call. We can be ashamed of anything that might result in God's kingdom advancing. And that might sound strange to you this morning, me saying that. You might struggle to imagine a scenario of being ashamed of God and his work in the world. But when you fear man, when you're worried about what other people think of you for being a Christian, anything is possible. Anything. We can experience shame in all of these ways. Take the example of Peter. Jesus is put on trial. And this is Peter. This is someone that we esteem in the church and are so thankful for. But Peter, before his crucifixion, before Jesus' crucifixion, Matthew tells us that Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl approached him and said, you were with Jesus, the Galilean too. But he denied it. Peter denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about. When he, when he had gone out to the gateway, another woman saw him and told those who were there, this man was with Jesus, the Nazarene. And again, he denied it with an oath this time. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there approached and said to Peter, you really are one of them, since, you're, since your accent gives you away. Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath. I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. 
And he went outside and wept bitterly. What was happening with Peter? What was going on in Peter's life? Well, he was ashamed of associating with Jesus. So he denies him three times. And the third time he calls down a curse. But notice a shift in his shame here. Peter moves from a misplaced shame to something of a well-placed shame in verse 75. He went outside and wept bitterly. Peter was ashamed that he was ashamed. He was ashamed that he was ashamed of Jesus. And it led to a change that would completely change his life. So that's the second way in which we can experience misplaced shame. When we're ashamed of something that honors and glorifies God. And finally, misplaced shame is when we feel the shame for something that we didn't do. And there's no doubt about it, this is a more difficult one for us to think about this morning. And that can be a shame for something done against us. Uh, when someone hurts us in some way, we can experience the shame that they did this to us. Or it can be a shame when we believe that it was our fault that something happened. Even though objectively it wasn't our fault in any way whatsoever, we can be completely innocent and we can still think it was us. And as a result, we experience shame. Or it can be a combination of the two. These people can hurt us and they can say, it's your fault that I did this. Perhaps that's something you've heard before. Someone hurt you and said, it's your fault that I did this. This often happens with situations of abuse. And it's a means of manipulation. It's a means of control over a person for selfish gain. In the movie, The Lion King, I think most of us have probably seen The Lion King, um, we see a clear example of wrongdoing, and it leads to shame, and it leads to manipulation. Uh, the Lion King is the cartoon lion version of Shakespeare's Hamlet. Uh, not a lot of people know that, but it is true. Um, and that's not the most important piece of information I'm going to share this morning, but it might come in handy for a quiz one day. Uh, and The Lion King, Scar is the younger brother of the king, Mufasa. And Scar is deeply jealous of Mufasa, and particularly that Mufasa is king and he's not king. And this is compounded by the fact that if Mufasa dies, then he won't be next in line to the throne. His son Simba will be. And so it's his jealousy that drives him to devise a wicked plan to kill Mufasa. And he, he makes it look like it was Simba's fault, eventually killing him as well. That's his plan. And we've all probably seen the film. Uh, we all know what happens. The plan works to near perfection, right up until the point of Simba being killed. And it's, it still gets me. It's such a sad scene when Simba realizes his dad is dead and he buries himself under his dad's lifeless paw. But it's at this moment, this is a moment of manipulation, Scar turns up and he says to Simba, what have you done? What have you done? Not, he doesn't say, Simba, look what I've done, because he did it. He says, what have you done, Simba? Simba, this was your fault, Scar continues. The king is dead, and if it weren't for you, he'd still be alive. What will your mother think? Scar is telling Simba here, 
This happened not only because of what you did, but because of who you are. And by bringing his mother into it, he's bringing even more shame into the equation. Shame upon shame upon shame. You've brought shame in yourself. You've brought shame in your whole family. And Simba in his shame runs away. Now, if you want, if you want to know what happens next, it's on Disney Plus. You can do that. Uh, but this morning, as we think about that example, I don't want us to miss this key point. When it comes to shame, and in particular, misplaced shame, this is all, this is what we have a tendency of doing. Like Simba, we do this. We run away, we hide, we cover up, we do everything we can not to revisit what shameful thing we believe we did and we believe points to who we are as individuals. And you only need to look at the examples of Adam and Eve and Peter to see that this is what we do. You only need to look at your own life and the examples of sin and shame that you've experienced to see that this, this is what we do. We run. We experience shame and we hide. We run. We cover up. This is what Sam Storm says on the problem and effect of shame for the human soul. He says, shame can lead to a variety of emotions and actions. It leads to feelings of being not just unqualified, but disqualified from anything meaningful. People enslaved to shame are constantly apologizing to others for who they are. They feel small, flawed, never good enough. They live under the crippling fear of never measuring up, of never pleasing those whose love and respect they desire. This often results in efforts to work harder to compensate for feeling less than everyone else. Shame has innumerable effects on the human soul. Those in shame have a tendency to hide and to create walls of protection to hide their true selves. They are terrified that if they are truly seen and known, they will be rejected by others. So they put on a false face and adopt a personality or certain traits they think others will find acceptable. They are led to be less than they could be, less than they are, and they are deliberately st stifle, and they deliberately stifle whatever strengths they have. They say to themselves, don't ever be vulnerable, it's dangerous. That's shame. That's the, that's the effects of shame. And I think we can all identify this as a problem and reality in our lives. So it's been important for us to think about the problem of shame. I want us now to look at the answer to that problem. Because praise God, there is an answer. It's not all negative for us this morning. There is an answer to this problem of shame. So the solution of shame. And I've been struck over the last few weeks in this Freedom in Christ series at how similar the messages have been. Um, and similar in terms of what the conclusion has been to each of these problems. So we thought about each of these problems, each of these challenges and issues, and the answer has always been the same answer. We thought about freedom from lies, freedom from fear, freedom from unforgiveness, freedom from shame today. The answer is always the same. The word of God. God's word is the answer to these problems. Scripture has to be like a cultivated garden in our hearts. If you're someone who longs to see lies, fear, unforgiveness, and shame conquered in your life, then let me ask, how is your relationship with God's word? If you're battling these things, 
and you're finding it difficult to be free from these things, don't focus on these things. How is your relationship with the Word of God? There is no other way. God has given us one pathway to conquer all of these issues. Scripture. How is your relationship with the Word of God? This is why I want you to, I want to earnestly encourage you this morning, um, as Samuel mentioned. Our Bible reading plan, we're, we're in January, there's still a long way to go. If you're not already doing so, there's still time to be a part of that. There's something precious and powerful about reading God's Word together. To do that as a group of men and as a group of women. And the more and more we delight to do this, the more and more we experience this, I'm utterly convinced, and I'm utterly convinced not only because I see it in Scripture, because I've seen it in my own life as well, the more and more we are in God's Word together, the more and more we will be protected from every lie and scheme and tactic of the evil one. That's the truth. The Word of God is not optional for us. It's your spiritual armor. So put it on every single day. You need it for survival. You will not survive the Christian life if you have this casual, half-hearted, inconsistent relationship with God's Word. You will not survive. Put it on. Put on God's Word every day. Put it on with the brothers and sisters who sit beside you today. If you want to do that, if you're not a part of what we're doing, join us. This is about survival. And it's about thriving in God as well and being fruitful for him. So speak to me after our time. It takes two seconds for us to sign you up. And, I, and as we take time to read God's word together, we experience a unity with one another, but we experience a unity with God that protects us from our own flesh, from the world, and from Satan and his schemes. God's word is what will free you from every form of shame. And in Mark 5, we read the story of a woman who suffered from bleeding for 12 years. And I want us just now to, to focus on this as we think about God's word. There's no doubt with the type of disease that she had and the fear from those around her, that if they touched her, they would be defiled. This was clearly someone who lived in shame. She lived in shame, cultural shame, relational shame, personal shame, spiritual shame. She was afraid to show her face to others. Shame defined this woman. But she hears about Jesus. And she hears about how he has a power to transform lives. And she wonders for a moment if this might happen to her. If she touches Jesus, would she be transformed? She asks that question. And so she musters up the courage to look for him. And she says in her heart, if I just touch his clothes, then I'll be made well. So she finds him walking through a crowd. And this is exactly what she does. She gets near to Jesus. She, she touches his robe. And Jesus realizes that power has gone from him. And so she asks the crowd, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, who touched me? But as he looks around to see who had done this, this woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, knowing that she had been instantly healed, came and fell down before him. She tells Jesus everything. And I want us to take note this morning 
It is Jesus and only Jesus through his work that can bring about this kind of transformation. We all carry different issues and problems. None of us have the problem that she had, as far as I'm aware. But we all have problems and issues and challenges that can overwhelm us and cause shame. And she touches Jesus and experiences transformation. And we can do the same. We can all do the same. We can all touch Jesus. We can all come to his word and experience renewal. Jesus approaches her. And interestingly, he tells her three things. And I want us to see that this is also true for every single one of us. No matter what it is we face today, Jesus says three things to this woman. Firstly, he tells her that she was healed of her disease. So after 12 years of physical suffering and relational rejection, she was healed instantly. Praise God for that. Secondly, he tells her that she can go in peace. She doesn't need to worry about what others think about her. Her life is free from this debilitating disease and all of its social consequences. And then finally, and most importantly, he calls her daughter. He calls her daughter. So it wasn't just that she was physically healed. She was spiritually healed. She was emotionally healed. She had a new identity. She no longer needed to live in shame. And for all of us who profess faith in Christ today, I want you to understand, Jesus calls you daughter. Jesus calls you son. And it's that new identity. It's only that identity that will allow you to experience freedom from misplaced shame in your heart. So when you realize who it is you now belong to, you belong to Jesus. Your new identity is in him. No weapon formed against you can prosper. No weapon, including the weapon of misplaced shame. Never. Your identity is in Christ, so live in that identity because nothing's going to defeat you as you're rooted in Christ and his word. <coughs> this morning, as we reflect on this example of freedom from shame through freedom in Christ, I want to just encourage you to be a people who run to Jesus by running to his word. Be a people who touch Jesus' robe by opening up his word. Be a people who hear Jesus by hearing his word. And be a people who experience a life free from shame as you receive his word. As you take it, you hear it, you take it, you believe it, you live by it. So let God's word shape you. Let it mold you. Let it change you. Let it heal you as it shaped, molded, changed, and healed the woman of Mark chapter 5. This is the only pathway to a life free from shame. And to all of us here this morning, let me just say, as we close, Jesus gets it. He really does get it. He knows the reality and power of shame himself. He went through every human experience, every human experience that we've been through. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, including shame, as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. Now, does that not bring great encouragement to your heart to know that Jesus understands shame, gets it? He's not this distant, aloof God. He met us where we were at. He lived amongst us. He experienced the tangible reality of shame. And he has offered us a way 
free from shame. In our passage in Hebrews 12, the writer to the Hebrews tells us in verse 2, that Jesus, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus came to experience the height of all pain because of the cross, and he came to experience the depth of all shame because of the cross, and neither would have the last word over his life. And we see from Hebrews, it would be joy and it would be glory that would define him and not shame. Now, the writer to the Hebrews tells us here, not that Jesus overcame shame. It doesn't say that Jesus overcame shame or endured shame or suffered shame. It tells us that Jesus despised shame. He despised shame. It's quite a, a strange phrase. He despised shame. What did that mean for Jesus? What does that mean for us? The fact that Jesus despised shame on the cross. Shame was running rampant on the cross. Shame was everywhere on the cross. Jesus was abandoned. That was shameful. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was beaten. Jesus was stripped naked. Jesus was tortured. Everything about the cross screamed shame and disgrace. And Jesus, his heart response was to despise everything that was shameful on the cross. Why did he do this? Why did he despise shame? And what does that mean for us? If Jesus despised shame on the cross, what does that mean for you and for me? Well, Jesus saw it for what it was. Jesus recognized that this kind of shame was misplaced shame. It served no purpose in his life, no purpose. And so he completely rejected it. And John Piper, speaking of Hebrews 12 too, he describes in a really unique way, he describes what Jesus was going, going through as he despised shame on the cross. And as he described what was going on with him, he uses creative language to describe what Jesus would have said to shame hypothetically as he hung on the cross. And as we close, let me just share what Piper writes. So this is Jesus speaking to shame. And I want us just to use what we, what we hear here as a prayer, as a means from which we can respond to shame and say, you're not going to have the last word. You're not going to have any influence or control over my life. Joy in Christ is what's going to define me. And joy in Christ is what I'm going to live by. So Piper writes this, Jesus speaking to shame. Listen to me, shame. Do you see that joy in front of me? Compared to that, you are less than nothing. You are not worth comparing to that. I despise you. You think that you have power. Compared to the joy before me, you have none. Joy, joy, joy. That is my power, not you, shame. You are worthless. You are powerless. You think you can distract me. I won't even look at you. I have a joy set before me. Why would I look at you? You are ugly and despicable, and you are almost finished. You cover me now as with a shroud. Before you can say so there, I will throw you off like a filthy rag. I will put on my royal robe. You think you are great, because even last night you made my disciples run away. You are a fool, shame. You are, you are a despicable fool. That abandonment, that loneliness, this cross, these tools of yours, 
They are all my sacred sufferings and will save my disciples, not destroy them. You are a fool. Your filthy hands fulfill holy prophecy. Farewell, Shane. It is finished. Amen. It's true for all of us. It's true for Christ. It is true for every single one of us. Do you see the implication? Denison Baptist Church. If that's Jesus' response to Shane, then you and I who are in Christ, Christ is in us, we can adopt the same attitude of Christ Jesus. And we can, we can all share in that passionate despising of shame. So it's not enough for you and I to come to God's word. We need to come with confidence and courage that God's going to help us in our shame. We need to come with a spirit-filled heart that fully and completely despises misplaced shame. Because you're in Christ. Christ is in you. Nothing else matters. To despise shame is to be like Jesus. Amen. So let me just encourage you. Believe that. Live like that. Encourage other people to live like that as well. It's for your joy and it's for his glory. And they're both connected. As you are joyful, God is glorified. So a life marked by freedom in Christ is a life marked by freedom from shame. So praise God. His mercy is good. And this morning, we just want to give you opportunity to respond. Uh, we're going to give, we're going to respond in a number of ways. And I just recognize if, if you have never made a decision to follow Jesus, let me just ask, what is stopping you from doing that today? If you have never made Jesus Lord of your life, then after your time, TJ and I will be here at the front. We'd be happy to chat to you. As we have coffee and we ha as we have fellowship, there is opportunity to chat and to be prayed for. And we can find a quiet space to pray for you. But as we are here, there's also opportunity to receive prayer. Maybe for something you're going through. Maybe you just feel overwhelmed by something. Maybe you are experiencing shame today. Then do speak with us. Speak with someone you know and trust. And we'll take time to pray for you. This morning we're also going to respond by worship. We're going to worship through song. We're going to give God thanks that the stranglehold of shame no longer needs to be on us. We're free. Your love was great. My sin was greater. It's true. It's not my sin was great. Your love was greater. It's your love was great. No, sorry. I messed that up there. That's not true. Your love was great. My sin was greater. My sin was great. My sin was great. Your love was greater. That's true. Amen. Edit that out for YouTube purposes. <laughs> Praise God. This is a gospel reality for all of us. My sin was great. Your love was greater. This morning we also come to the table. Uh, this table represents how it is we can find victory in our shame. As we come to this table, we recognize Jesus' perfect sacrifice for each one of us. Uh, as we remember his great love for us by dying for us. It's a moment before we come to the table to also confess, to say, well, I've fallen short in this way. I confess that sin. So before we come to this table, I would invite you just to recognize if there's anything in your life that you're carrying that is not of him, to ask for forgiveness. And he is faithful and just to forgive you of all sin, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Perhaps this morning you're still unsure about your own faith journey and you're still trying to work it out, we would invite you not to come to the table 
instead to observe it and even to pray and ask that God would be at work in their life. This is for those who love and follow Christ. It was on the night in which he was betrayed that Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. So as we take this bread and as we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And the Lord dies despising the shame. But I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Amen. Let's pray. So Father, we, we pray that you would now minister to us as we respond in all these ways. We pray that you would take our time and, and use it. We want your will to be done. We don't want any one of our wills to be done. We, we pray that by your spirit, you would convict us and that you would help us to see that, that your grace is sufficient for us, that your power has been made perfect in our weakness and that we can be men and women free from shame. We ask you now, work in and through us as we respond. In Jesus' name, amen.